I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 there. Obviously, we are jumping ahead uh, considerably in our uh, series uh, through the book of Mark that we've been going through since the start of this year, uh, jumping ahead to align ourselves with the events of Easter week and remind us of those things. As we do so today and look at what for many of us may be a familiar account, a familiar story, the account of the events of Palm Sunday, we will see Jesus entering into and displaying most openly his triumphant kingship. And we'll see the response of the people gathered there to cry out in praises and in pleas to him. And as we do so, and as you read along, and as we go through this time in God's word, I hope that each one of us will consider how we will respond today and in this week and from here forward in our lives to the triumphant kingship of the Lord Jesus. And in particular, how praises and please will come forth from our hearts, from our lips, to that triumphant King. I invite you to stand with me in recognition and honor of God's Word, its holiness, its truth, its power. I'll read aloud as you read along with me silently. Mark chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You may be seated. As you do, let me pray for us again. Oh, Father God, we ask that you would come and be our teacher today. Strengthen us. Let us see this triumphant king more clearly as he steps forward to reveal most fully his kingship. And let our hearts, minds, and voices resound with praises and pleas to that triumphant king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the movie Secretariat or not. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Personally, I'm not a big, huge horse race guy. 
But the story of Secretariat is absolutely remarkable if you know anything about it. Though he was written off in his early racing years when he reached that prime horse racing age of three, he rose to prominence and drew the attention of not just our nation, but the entire world with his unbelievable triumphs as he reigned king over the horse racing world. What people found most interesting about Secretariat was not just his raw speed, but his dramatic pattern of beginning way back in the pack. And then at just the right time, at just the right moment, moving to the forefront for the win, for the victory. This was evident perhaps most dramatically in that 1973 year when Secretariat won the Triple Crown. The Kentucky Derby was that first race, and he started very late in that one and broke out winning by just two lengths, but setting a record in that race that still stands today. Perhaps most interesting, if you read the details, each quarter mile of that race, the horse got faster, not slower. 25 seconds for the first part, 24 for the next part, high 23s for the next part, low 23s for the final part of that race, ran it in 22 seconds, accelerating into the finish rather than slowing down. The Preakness Stakes that year won a similar victory, narrowly missed setting the record, and then came the Belmont Stakes. The Belmont Stakes Secretariat won that rare triple crown, came out alongside, again, pacing together with Sham, the best competitor against Secretariat, for a little while, hanging together, and then broke out in front in dramatic form, winning the race by a full 31 lengths of a horse, two seconds underneath the record time, which are usually broken by tenths of a second, a full sixteenth of a mile ahead of the rest of the pack. Well, everybody loves a winner, right? You can understand that about this particular horse. But what I love about that story or about any competitive race, human or animal, is that moment when the competitor breaks out into the lead, breaks out from the pack, takes that risk, takes that stride, and pulls away. In our passage today, Jesus is, of course, not riding on any dramatic horse. This is more of a parade than any kind of race that's going on. In fact, he's intentionally on a donkey to fulfill prophecy and demonstrate the type of leader he would be But we should have the same excitement as we look at Jesus breaking out, breaking out, openly displaying that he is coming into Jerusalem as the kings of Old Testament would come and displaying that he is the triumphant one. He breaks out into the lead in that way. To run the race, folks, if I can carry the analogy forward, to run the race of all the events that we know 
are coming this week to go in and to tell his disciples about his love and show him their love, to see them abandon him in the garden, to see Peter betray him, to go to the cross and suffer and die for my sins and for yours, and then to be risen triumphant. All of this, Jesus is breaking out into that in full stride as he rides in to Jerusalem. Now we should say that we could focus on a couple of different things in this passage. We could look at the cult and what the cult means. We could look at it relative to Zechariah chapter 9 and the promised fulfillment that the king would ride in on that cult. We could look at uh, some things that are before this passage or be after, after this passage. But what I want us to focus in on this morning, hone in on, is the words that the people proclaim as Jesus is coming. Somewhat familiar for us, perhaps, but I want us to look at them a little more closely and ask ourselves this crucial question. Is our recognition of Jesus as King producing in us, welling up in us, praises, praises like the praises these ones offer up? Now, I know, of course, and you probably do, it's been pointed out by others wisely, that the same people who are in this crowd proclaiming and calling out these praises are potentially five days later, part of the same crowd that when disappointed with the suffering servant manner of Jesus' work, his kingship coming through suffering servanthood, are going to cry, not Hosanna, not blessed, but cry, crucify him. Crucify him. So we know that. But that doesn't make their cries on this day any less helpful for us. Their motives may have been off track, just like our motives are often off track in the things that we speak to God, in the cries, the pleas, and praises we lift up to Him. We can learn from what they praised, even if we know it wasn't fully from the heart or wasn't fully informed. By the gospel. If you want to follow along a bit, you can turn in your worship guide to the back section of it. I have a few quotes I'm going to reference. And there's also a section there to jot down this main idea that I hope will bring things together. It's a little more verbose than I like for it to be, but you can write it down there if you would like to. And this is the main thing that I think the Lord would have for us to take from these verses today. And that is that since Jesus makes his move, steps out, makes his move to reveal his triumphant kingship, we should sincerely join in the praises and pleas of his people. Since Jesus makes his move to reveal his triumphant kingship, we should sincerely join in the praises and the pleas of his people. Take a look with me at this Mark passage, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. What is proclaimed? 
Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The rest of the Gospels repeat repeat very similar phrases. And all of this is taken ultimately from Psalm 118, which we'll come back to in a minute. But let me read to you these verses from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, is what Hosanna means. Save us, it says, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. From Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. These people gathering together uh, may not have understood all the fulfillment of the Old Testament that was coming in Jesus, but they knew that they should expect a king. And when the king comes, that their hearts, that their lives should be lifted up in praise. And Psalm 118 gave them words to use for that. And so they fittingly proclaim those words. Come back to that in just a minute. But let's take a second and pick apart a few of these themes that are raised in these words of praise. Again, maybe things that some of us have heard since we were little ones. Maybe we can remember when we held the palm branches and waved them around. Hosanna is the way these praises begin. And indeed, it's a term of praise But I think we probably lean a little bit too much to the praise side of that. We're used to seeing folks wave the palm branches branches around. And then especially when it says Hosanna in the highest, it sounds kind of like praise him in the highest to us. And certainly it has some of that meaning. But I want you to think about this in a little bit different way. Because the primary meaning of it, as we just saw in Psalm 118, is crying out. Not a praise, actually, but a plea. Oh, God, save us. Lord, please save us. Save us. It's a cry for salvation to come. And even when they cry Hosanna in the highest, it means to the greatest degree, pulling out all the stops in the most wonderful way. So it means Hosanna, God save us to the greatest extent. Think about that for just a minute as we think about this week that we're coming into. Even without realizing it, these people praising, calling out to Jesus, coming into this city of Jerusalem, even though they don't understand it, even though they don't really want what they are crying out for in the way that Jesus is going to deliver it, they nevertheless cry out with perfectly appropriate words because Jesus is going to come in this subsequent week And he's going to pull out all the stops to save them, to save me, to save you, to save all who would look to him in faith and trust him. Hosanna in the highest. Save us to the highest degree. What a fitting thing for us to cry out in our hearts, for us to proclaim in our minds, for us to share with those around us our cry that God would save us. I put in your bulletin a note from Joseph Carroll, an English Puritan of the 1600s. He said this. He said, The greatest thing that we can desire next to the glory of God is our own salvation. And the sweetest thing that we can desire is the assurance of our salvation. 
all saints, and by saints he means all believers, all those who have trusted in Christ, not some special class of church people. All saints, he says, shall enjoy a heaven when we leave this earth. Some saints enjoy a heaven while they are here on earth. Have you come to that place of crying out to God, maybe for the first time for some here today, crying out and saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I need to be rescued. If we've come to that place, are we day in, day out, week in, week out, not just on Easter week or Palm Sunday, crying out and saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I need you to rescue my soul. I need your work in my life. Hosanna. Hosanna. Second thing we see in these praises and pleas is the term blessed. If you look back again at that Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, it says, Blessed, or praise be, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, it says. Praise be to this triumphant king. So we think again about our hearts. If your heart is like mine throughout the week, it seems to ebb and flow greatly between an attitude of praise and genuine joy in my Savior and an attitude of apathy to sometimes disregard. I think we put it in our confession of faith time this morning to deny or defy. Deny or defy. And then it seems at points we rise again. To cry out, blessed be this wonderful Savior. Jonathan Edwards writes about this. He writes in the 1700s, perhaps the greatest American theologian. Uh, work your way with me through a little bit of the verbiage here because I think what he says is so, so helpful for us today as we think about our hearts moving towards the Lord Jesus in praise. He says, Christ Jesus has true excellency. It means he's better than anything else that we ascribe true excellency to. He says, so great that when the mind comes to see it, comes to see Jesus and his excellency, it rests there. A wonderful thing to have rest. It sees a transcendent glory and an ineffable sweetness in him. It sees that till now it's been pursuing the shadows, but now it's found the substance. That before it had been seeking happiness in the stream, but now it's found the ocean. It is an infinite excellency in which the mind can find no bounds. Every new discovery makes this beauty appear more ravishing. There's room enough for the mind to go deeper and deeper, and never come to the bottom. A soul that comes to Christ feeds upon this and lives upon it. As we praise God, whether it's just thinking in our mind throughout the day about His Word, about 
things we know about Him, about blessings He's bringing into our life, whether we're gathered in a worship setting and we're vocalizing it through songs or we're telling a coworker next to us in the cubicle about what God has done and giving praise to Him, or we're celebrating the birth of some new little ones and, and calling out to God to do His saving work in their lives, whatever things bring us to praise, each one of them is an opportunity ultimately to dive deeper into the Lord. As we praise, we go deeper in. Third thing we see in these verses, and this is a brief thing for us to just consider, what do they, what do they praise Him for? What are some of the things they praise Him for? Back again to Mark chapter 11. Blessed is He who what? Blessed is He who comes In the name of the Lord. All I want to point out to you here, folks, is that Jesus' mission the whole time through is to do the will of His Father in heaven. We're going to meditate on on it, I know, this week when we think about Jesus in that garden and He says, take this cup from me. cup wasn't just some fancy verbiage. The cup, people of God, was the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus said, take this from me, but what? Not what I will, but what you will, Lord God. Jesus is to be praised because he comes not with his own program, with his own agenda like we go through most of our days worrying about and pursuing. He comes in the name of the Lord for the Lord's purposes and plans. So, too, should we, as we follow the King, learn not just to praise Him, not just to call out for Him to save us, but to live our lives in the name of the Lord, for Him and for His glory. The last thing we see here is the kingship of this King. I've already talked about it, but I just want you to see it, that it's there. In verse 10, it says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. For these ones standing outside Jerusalem, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that came before in that Old Testament kingship. You ever wonder about those Old Testament passages and how do they fit together and what do they mean for Jesus? Well, at least one of the things, folks, was that the Old Testament people had this kingship which was to be a picture for them. Some kind of image, some kind of resemblance, flawed, uh, falling short as it would be, but of the kingship of God, of the kingship of Jesus. I like what C.S. Lewis says about what happens, what can happen, if we draw near to this loving but powerful and mighty king. He says this, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not the sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to everyone, anyone, They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up from the very center of reality. If you are close to it, 
The spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Turn back with me in your Bible if you've got one handy or if you're using your doodad gadget to look at. Go look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And let me just walk through this and then we'll close. Just listen as I read this. Again, this is the psalm that the people are drawing their words for praises to Jesus from. So as I read this, I just want you to think about how many of the themes of Easter week are resonated. And maybe I'll stop at a few points and mention several of them. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Ever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Picture there, Jesus before Pilate. Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. Jesus trusts himself to God. Jump down to verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And then verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. He's saying this. They're proclaiming these words as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Entering into those gates. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. Oh, how true that is of Jesus. Rejected and yet the cornerstone of our lives and our faith. And then verse 23 and 24. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, not only is it impressive that Jesus moves to the forefront, and as he moves to the forefront, he draws the praises and pleas of the people, but it's impressive that he comes as triumphant king. As Americans, uh, most of us here, uh, we're not real big on royalty, on the king thing as part of our program, right? And yet, uh, last year, around April 29th, uh, 2011, a lot of us got pretty interested in it, didn't we? That wedding day of Prince William and Kate, I see all you ladies smiling, you knew what I was headed towards. It's interesting to see a touch of royalty, a touch of celebration in a royal style and the attention that it draws. I jotted down just a few things from that important day in British history. 
1,900 guests of their closest friends attended the event. Over 5,000 street parties were held in Great Britain alone. Uh, One million, listen to this, one million people lined the streets from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace to watch them. Uh, 26.3 million viewers in England alone watched it and 72 million on the YouTube Royal Channel. They're innovating over there, I guess. Hours before the service, the Queen conferred upon William the title of Duke of Cambridge. Not just that one, but let's go for a few others. Earl of Strathern and Baron of Carrickfergus. Kate became her royal highness after the wedding, the royal highness, the Duchess of Cambridge. The wedding was a wedding party as they exited were escorted by royal guards and cavalry in that very ornate carriage. And then once they were done with the carriage, they drove in an Aston Martin D80, DB6 Volante. Memorabilia was sold. I won't list all of it for the event. All kinds of things estimated to total 44 million pounds sold uh, from all those items. Two choirs and one orchestra and a fanfare ensemble played, the London Chamber Orchestra, the Royal Choir, the Central Royal Band of the Air Force, and the total cost for this thing is estimated to have exceeded 20 million pounds. That's the way man-made royalty does it. That's the kind of attention man-made royalty draws. Just Just a drop in the bucket, folks. Just a drop in the bucket to what we will experience, to what we're hopefully already anticipating in hearts and minds and lives that lift up praise to our triumphant King, to that day when the Scriptures tell us that Jesus will come and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we do long that you would work in our hearts. And we pray now because we know that we do not speak these praises. We do not have them in our hearts. They do not mark our lives as they should. We ask that you would give us greater love, greater praise, greater dependence, greater calling and relying upon you to save us. In all things, we certainly pray for that during this special week as we remember all that you, Lord Jesus, did for us in the cross and in the resurrection. We cry, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Amen.